Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and listeners. From now on, please send all fan mail to 41 Wallaby Lane. <laughs> wow. You're, you know, you're, you're really putting a lot of... Uh, I don't know what it is, but something into these uh, <laughs> these intros here. Joie so, de, de vivre? Why not? Let's go with that. So we are now here at the beginning of our seventh season of Awesome Movie Year. And we're kicking it off, as we always do, with the box office champion. We are talking this season about the films of 2003. So we're uh, headed back. Closer to the present after having uh, been in the 70s and 80s for the last couple of seasons. And this episode, however, we are not talking about the number one movie at the box office in 2003 because we're going to talk about that movie later uh, in another episode. Intrigue. We might as well just say because it's related to the statistics of this one. But what we are talking about in this episode is the number two movie at the box office. We went down one on the list because we have this other one coming up later. And it is Pixar's Finding Nemo, which was number two, both in North America and worldwide in 2003. Yes. And if you are wondering, what we did is we looked at the list of highest grossing films and we saw number one, and then we just moved down to number two. Yeah, it was a it was a complex process in order to inside determine, baseball, right? There. Yeah, <laughs> which which movie to cover in this episode? So, uh, yes, Finding mm-hmm. Nemo was number two behind The Lord of the Rings: The Return of the King, which uh, don't worry, we'll be getting to in a later episode because we're not uh, trying to skip that. But hey, uh, Josh, yes, we shall not pass. Return of the Kings. We will actually do an episode on it. Sorry. We will. That is true. Thank you for that. I hope more uh, impressions slash quotes from the Lord of the Rings series are to come in that later episode. But for now, we're talking about Finding Nemo, which was hugely successful. Uh, It may not have quite hit number one, but it eventually, uh, over the course, I think, including a couple re-releases, grossed $940.3 million worldwide. Uh, on its budget of 94 million, which is not a small budget, but that still means it made 10 times its budget. So, you know, that's kind of good. Man, uh, it, you're crushing it with the math today. Man. Thank you. Thank you. You know, between that and the uh, <laughs> ability to move down a list from number one to number two, I think really <laughs> so much sophisticated stuff going on. If anyone there. needs a math tutor, Josh has some time. I do not. <laughs> um, and this movie was also highly acclaimed. It won the Oscar for Best Animated Feature, which was only the third ever uh, time that they gave out that award that had started just a couple years earlier. It was the first time that Pixar won that Oscar, um, which you would think they might just win every year, but they did not those first two years. Uh, It was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Original Score, and Best Sound Editing at the Oscars. So always impressive when animated movies can end up with nominations in categories along with live action movies, Uh, although it did not win those awards. Yeah, Um, but that screenplay, man, is so tight. Like, it it is a beast. And uh, the movies that it beat for animated feature, Brother Bear, which I have never seen, and Triplets of Belleville, which is an excellent French uh, animated film. That is. I know that's one of your favorites. 
Um, I think we've even talked about that as a possible movie to cover on this here show, but um, that didn't happen. <laughs> and uh, and I've never seen Brother Bear either. I feel like that's this might have been a year because again it was first starting out where they were just reaching for enough things to put in the category. And I think they don't have that difficulty anymore. There's more animated movies, but um, it was maybe a little shaky in some of those earlier years. Yeah. But Josh, some of the other awards, it won the Saturn Award for Best Animated Film and Supporting Actress. And Josh, did you vote for it? Because it was also the Las Vegas Film Critics Society pick for Best Animated Feature. I saw that, and I think I might not have yet been in the Las Vegas Film Critics Society in 2003, because I had just started reviewing movies not that long before. And, you know, as Dave can attest, it's a long process to be approved by the Las Vegas Film Critics Society. Yeah. So. Once, oh, yeah. once Dave got in, it lost all credibility. You're well, a sham, yeah, that's, Las Vegas that's, that's, Film it, Critics Society. So I think maybe I wasn't in it until possibly the next year or something like that. I don't remember. But it did win that award. And, you know, speaking of competing against live action films, it was nominated for the best picture musical or comedy at the Golden Globes. So that's, you know, they don't have an animated film category. So that's just along with the regular nominees. So that's impressive. And it won a ton of other awards. I don't know, Jason, if you want to go through any others, a lot of minor like critics groups and stuff like that. Well, the only ones I found that uh, are worth noting are Nickelodeon's Kid Choice for favorite movie and favorite voice uh, actor which was uh, Ellen DeGeneres for Dory. And she won a lot of uh, awards, like you were saying, from different critics groups throughout the, uh, throughout the world, Josh. Yeah, I mean, this was a highly awarded film, and, and deservedly so. And it was a huge hit with critics and with audiences. It got an A-plus from CinemaScore, which is the audience polling service, and that's pretty rare. Um, even for a movie that's very popular to get that highest possible score. So everyone who saw this movie pretty much loved it. Uh, it had a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Ooh. And uh, I uh, resisted the urge to find the one negative review. Oh, that's the it. one I would have wanted to hear. Uh, <laughs> it was Stephanie Zaharik in, uh, I think I think maybe she was writing for Salon at the time. Uh, I'm not sure, but she... Uh, Who's a totally respectable critic, but she was the one rotten that I saw in there. I, so I believe what she said was, I hate fun. I hate joy. I hate things that bring happiness to children. She didn't say that. I'm making it up. But I don't know uh, how you how you uh, give this one a negative review. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really look into it because I feel like when it's when it's that overwhelming, like finding that one little dissenting voice doesn't really represent uh, a major perspective on the movie. So Instead, I just found some positive reviews and, uh, you know, with interesting, hopefully interesting things to say. Uh, Roger Ebert, who had this ultimately as his number four movie of 2003, he said, Finding Nemo has all of the usual pleasures of the Pixar animation style, the comedy and wackiness of Toy Story or Monsters, Inc. or A Bug's Life. And it adds an unexpected beauty a use of color and form that makes it one of those rare movies where I wanted to sit in the front row and let the images wash out to the edges of my field of vision. The movie takes place almost entirely under the sea, in the world of colorful tropical fish, the flora and fauna of a shallow warm water shelf not far from Australia. The use of color, form, and movement make the film a delight, even apart from its story. And... I think this, it, you know, one thing about especially computer animation is that it often looks really outdated really quickly. 
I think, for example, if you watch the original Toy Story now, it looks somehow kind of cheap. But this movie, I feel like the animation still looks amazing. Yeah, I agree with you. That was something I noted. And I actually noted that quote uh, where Ebert said he wanted the colors to wash over him because, you know, as we know, Dave more than anyone misses the theatrical experience. And that's one of the great joys when you see something animated so beautifully and um, just technically amazing. Like this movie is seeing that on a big screen. It's almost like, uh, you know, overwhelming, right? In the most positive way. Um, but I agree with you that it, it it's 17 years old, right? 18 years old right now. And like, it still looks just pristine. It really does. And I think that's, I don't know why that is compared to other movies. Like I said, something like Toy Story, which I remember watching Toy Story again when Toy Story 4 came out. And it's still a very entertaining movie, but you can really tell how far animation has come since then. And so I don't know why that doesn't hold up as well as this one does. But whatever the reason, I mean, this movie looks gorgeous. Well, I mean, and I, I you can do all types of reading about it, but, you know, they like they went on like scouting trips to the Great Barrier Reef and they had to take, um, you know, scuba classes and they had all types of fish experts in and all this crazy, you know, amount of detail went into it to the point where I think they actually were told at one point that it looked too real and they needed to make the water like glimmer a little more and, you know, the colors pop a little more. So, but yeah, yeah, I think we've, uh, I think we've established it looks good. It does. It does. And I think, I mean, obviously they did all that research and they had a lot of attention to detail, but ultimately a lot of that just comes down to the technology that has certainly advanced since then. But I think even from that perspective, for whatever reason, you know, that's, it's still impressive. And other critics mentioned that as well. Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly said, you could trawl the seven seas and not net a funnier, more beautiful and more original work of art and comedy than Finding Nemo. The dazzling new computer animated adventure about a fishy father and son that furthers Pixar Animation Studios' record streak of excellence. No less innovative than The Matrix and a triumphant directorial debut for Andrew Stanton, the Pixar veteran who also devised the original story, co-wrote the screenplay with Bob Peterson and David Reynolds, and voices a sea turtle given to surfer dude speak. This epic teems with characters worth caring about. In this seamless blending of technical brilliance and storytelling verve, the Pixar team has made something as marvelously soulful and innately, fluidly American as jazz. So that is about as rave a review as you can get. Thank you for clarifying. I couldn't really tell which side of the fence she was on with that no, one. No, I, I mean, not only <laughs> No, I, I, I'm it, just but... messing with you. She, yeah, yeah she, lo she loved it. And, um, and again, like, you know, when we first saw this, um, you know, in the theater, like I agree with that. I don't think I don't think we'd ever seen animation like that was just this. Like I used the word overwhelming, but um, I use pristine, but like detailed and vibrant and lively. You know, it all just felt like it was like a new era. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I'm trying to remember that feeling from seeing it in the first time because it's it still looks impressive now, but I think it's the impact is maybe less because there's so many other movies that look also that impressive. Right. So I can't quite recall the feeling at the time. Uh, I mean, I definitely liked it, but I don't, I don't know how sort of overwhelmed as you're saying I was. Well, yeah, it's like, I remember I, uh, I studied, you know, Hitchcock and, you know, you go back and watch North by Northwest and the crop duster scene. Right. And you're like, Oh, that's a cool stunt. But like, imagine, 
if you had seen that in the theater, right at the time, like that's the most amazing thing ever put on film. And um, this is kind of the equivalent of that, I'd say from an animation standpoint. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, reading all of the reviews that you, you really get that sense. So uh, finally, Keith Phipps in the AV club said the production team led this time by writer, director, Andrew Stanton joins a silent comedian's sense of timing to a cartoonist's skill at emotional shorthand, alternating wild comic set pieces with introspective moments, and occasionally letting the two play out simultaneously. Like Pixar's previous films, Finding Nemo mines humors from the oddities of an unknown world, but stays grounded in a familiar one, finding recognizable elements of heartbreak and happiness amid the ink-jetting octopi and irritable flounders. And I think that's important that as gorgeous as this movie is, like it wouldn't matter necessarily if it didn't have a great story and great characters. You are correct. And I think that's the most fun is like, we like the main characters, but there's so many fun little side characters that uh, keep your interest throughout the film. There are, yeah, every little character. And uh, there was, I don't know if it was in one of these reviews elsewhere or another review that I looked at, but some some critic mentioned how even the those uh, small characters like the other you know fish in the fish tank that Nemo is captured in have more depth to them than most characters in most like live action Hollywood films and that might be a slight exaggeration but certainly they give you a lot to go on with characters like Will, Willem Dafoe's character uh, Gill the the sort of hardened veteran of the fish tank who's always trying to escape and uh, you know you get a sense of a whole background to these characters, even just in a few little moments. Yeah, they do a great job of uh, each character has a point of view or a, you know, defining trait that, you know, every thing that they say or do is filtered through, you know? So I would agree. One of the notes from research was that this is one of the few CGI films at the time that actually had a completed script that they were working from. You know, they usually build uh, as they're animating. And um, so that pr that probably helped the, the cause. Right. I mean, Pixar, I'm sure even starting with a completed script, there were a lot of changes and adjustments along the way. I mean, that's Pixar's process. And the thing about making a movie like this is that you can actually fully create scenes and then readjust them and do things that you can't do in a live action film. But I mean, I think one thing that Pixar does in a lot of their films is despite the sheer amount of effort and the sheer number of people that have to be involved to create a movie like this, that they really allow for them to be personal statements. And, you know, Andrew Stanton as the director and the co-writer really puts that personal stamp on this movie. And that goes for many Pixar movies of, you know, created by various different uh, filmmakers. And I'm sure having that screenplay to start with really helped. Yeah, you're right, Josh. Uh, he, you know, it is um, a personal story, a personal point of view. He said that the two things that inspired him were as a kid, he loved going to the dentist to see the fish tank. Right. And then also he was in the park with his son and he realized he was an overprotective dad. And uh, then he saw some picture in the National Geographic of two clownfish and it all just kind of hit him at once. So you're really uh, you're really on the ball today, Josh. Why, thank you, Jason. <laughs> Um, so as we established, we both saw this in the theater and, uh, given my poor memory, I have to ask, did we see this together? We, we did. I have the, the good memory of us, Josh, I was living in LA at the time and, um, you know, trying to make it in the, uh, the industry as they say, which is short for film and television industry. Um, right. And that, uh, that's why you almost made it because you knew that lingo <laughs> that helped. 
That helped. That and the ability to move down lists from number one to number two. But yes. uh, I was, uh, I remember just like not being in a good place uh, mentally. And uh, you, you know, as you often did, had a movie screening to go to. It was uh, ahead of time. And um, I drove up from L.A. because I was planning on driving up anyway. And I got in and we saw it that night. And it was like, I'm not going to say life affirming or like, you know, like a religious experience because it wasn't that. But it was such a joy to watch. And, you know, the more you kind of go over it and look at the structure of it, you're like, man, they just hit this thing out of the park. So I do remember us seeing it together and just right away just thinking, man, that's that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, that's a great story. I don't recall any of that, but um, I, I love I, that it was so important to Jason, and you just don't right. remember being. Well, there. I mean, I, it sounds like it was important to Jason for a lot of like his own personal uh, internal feelings, not because of something that we uh, did other than seeing mm-hmm. the movie. But um, yeah, I uh, yeah, I, I honestly like I knew that I saw it in the theater, and I looked up my review, which I didn't quote because it's very poorly written. And when weirdly focused on the idea of like lots of news stories about kidnappings happening at the time and how this was sort of like a response to that, which I don't remember anything about that. Anyway, I don't think so either. So I knew that I had seen the movie just because like I have that information, but I don't recall a single thing about the experience really. And that was why, you know, not only related to hanging out with Jason, but also like I was saying, I I don't really recall how you know, wowed I was by the movie, seeing it in the theater and whether it really like made that same impact on me. I gave it a good review, but, uh, other than that, I don't, I don't know. So thank, thankfully, you know, uh, I saw it again. Cause much like Dory, apparently I can't hold on <laughs> to any <laughs> memories. Um, um, well, you know, if I was going to defend you, Josh, you know, you have had to see more movies than probably anyone I know as a critic. So, you know, that, that would be how I would defend you. Of course, you know, it doesn't hurt that you don't remember what a special night we had. Sure. But that's really irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing I can assume that like I, I, we saw many movies together and I always, I always had these movies to see for work purposes and you were always invited to come along. And so, uh, it just, it all kind of runs together. Uh, That one I definitely remember because I left LA specifically to make it in time. And it was just kind of what, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you get what you need from art, you know, and if, if it just makes you feel good, sometimes it's a concert or a film. Like it really was, um, it really it was uplifting at the time for me. Yeah, no, that's great that it had that personal impact for you. And I was just like, uh, this is another uh, thing to do for work tomorrow. Um, Dave, did you see this at the time that it came out? Yeah, definitely. I remember loving it. He was with time. us, Josh. No, that I know he was not because I didn't know Dave in that at that time. So I can be certain you can't you can't gaslight me on that one, Jason. (laughs) Go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. I was I was uh, kidding around, Dave. But please give us your your memories, your impressions of your first viewing. I I remember seeing the movie. That's about it. All right. See, there there we go. I'm glad I made a special point to give you the floor. I don't yes, feel so absolutely. bad for not having a, a lovely story about my viewing and finding Nemo. So uh, there's a lot. I mean, as we said, there's a million awards and other things about the background of this. Any other notable things you want to mention, Jason? Uh, yeah, I mean, look, uh, it, it had like every, you know, highest this, highest that at one point in time. Highest grossing G-rated film, highest grossing animated film, best selling DVD. And of course, the Pixar ones just kept topping each other. One cool fact was uh, that it took one frame 
uh, which is one twenty fourth of a second, up to four days to complete because of the amount of detail that went into it. Uh, lastly, we talked about it having a full script before it went into production. They so they were able to start pre production in nineteen ninety seven and the actual production in two thousand. So those are some fun facts, Josh. Those are fun, and it's amazing how long it takes to make these movies. And even now when the technology obviously has come further and I'm sure it doesn't take uh, as much time to render a single frame, like uh, Pixar movies still go through such long development before they're finally made that, you know, anything you see has been in development for years and years. And they really put a lot of meticulous effort into these things. Yeah. And one other thing that uh, took meticulous effort, I think this was the first film ever dubbed into Navajo. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I saw that, hmm. that they've, they've done that. Disney uh, uh, made that happen for, uh, for the Navajo community. And I think, yeah, w- Wikipedia has that info. And I think it said that Star Wars had also been dubbed into Navajo, but that might have been after this. But still, I mean, I think that also speaks to how like universally beloved this movie is, that every corner of the world is, you know, has some sort of personal investment in this movie. Right. If you were looking at territories where it did well, it was like Japan, highest grossing foreign film and then like top five in there is like Malta and you're like oh okay it hit in Malta you know so there you go I think you're right it was universally beloved uh except by you who forgot that you saw it with me on a very very important evening of our lives go on Josh but I remember that I liked the movie (laughs) so that was something good we'll we'll come back then and talk about our general thoughts on Finding Nemo Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 2003, we are kicking off the season by talking about the number two movie at the box office, Pixar's Finding Nemo, which, as we just established, is universally beloved. And I don't think any of us are going to contradict that in any way. This is a great movie. It is a great movie. There's so much going on that we've already talked about. And I don't know if there's ever, I know like, this is used in like screenwriting lectures and classes and like Craig Mazin, who I've mentioned before, who, you know, co-hosts uh, uh, script notes and, you know, wrote Chernobyl. Uh, he always mentions like, oh, within the first minute, we've established that the main character has like one of the most giant obstacles ever. And then we're going to just keep throwing every possible obstacle on top of that uh, for him to overcome because of the love of you know, he has for his son. So they do a really good job of structure and and making every moment count on screen. Yeah, this is a very, I mean, I don't want to say like an efficient movie that makes it sound sort of soulless because it's definitely not that. But but you're right. I think it doesn't surprise me that it's studied in screenwriting classes for its structure because every moment definitely builds towards the goals, but it also builds the character development. You know, you you understand Marlon, the character, the father played by Albert Brooks immediately. Um, but as we were saying earlier, even these small side characters have their own perspectives and their own inner lives. And every moment that they're on screen or that they're involved in the story, um, not only do they move that story forward, but they reveal a little something about themselves. And, uh, you know, even the very minor characters like the the pelican who is helping the fish in the dentist's office to try to escape uh, has his own sort of 
fastidiousness and you you get a sense of his personality. So, I mean, I feel like that's something that Pixar does really well in all of their films, but it certainly uh, is is really effective here. I think probably this is the best version of that. I mean, Toy Story does it with a lot of characters too, right? But this one maybe has the most um, amount of most memorable characters. Like, you know, even Jacques the Little Cleaner, you know, Shrimp, who's just like... Um, you know, when they try to get the tank filthy and uh, Gil catches him cleaning, and he's like, I told you to stop. And he goes, I am ashamed of myself, you know, just like really funny stuff all the way throughout. You mentioned Nigel the Pelican, uh, which I think is Eric Bana's voice. Um, he has one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. It's when, um, you know, he the story of Marlin crossing the oceans um, and this like legend has built. And, you know, he hears it and he goes and he tells Nemo. And, you know, Nemo doesn't believe it because he knows his dad is so scared of anything. He'd never leave, you know, the anemone, whatever. And then he's like, no, his name is there, you know, and he he kind of, you know, convinces Nemo. And like, it's just like, and Nemo's able to believe in his dad again. Like, that's a really great moment in this movie. Yeah, there's a lot of really nice moments. I mean, they get, as those reviews point out, they... They get the emotions in there and the emotions are affecting. Um, it's not just about the dazzling visuals. And I don't think it's ever, you know, you're never so distracted by the way the movie looks that you're not paying attention to the characters or the emotions. And that may go to what, Jason, what you were saying about the idea that at one point it looked too realistic and they had to kind of uh, dial that back because that can almost be distracting. I remember watching um, Toy Story 4 and thinking this looks too realistic. Like this is a story about toys that have come to life. It should not look this realistic. Mm. So I, I think there's a balance there that that this movie gets right. Well, you just went Duke Kaboom all over Toy Story 4, Josh. <laughs> I, I, like Toy, I like Toy Story 4, but that was certainly one thing that I felt like was maybe miscalculated in that movie. Did you have a favorite little side character? I, I don't know if I had a favorite. I mean, they all have their own amusing... I'm always happy to hear John Ratzenberger show up, you know, who's sort of the Pixar good luck charm who always does a voice, uh, you know, sometimes a very, very brief voice, but he voices all the, I don't know what kind of fish they are, but the ones that kind of swim in unison, they, yeah. all, have his, his, they all have his voice and they create little uh, images of other fish. And that, that was a fun moment. Those there are called moonfish. Yeah. Yeah. AKA Cliff Clavin from uh, Cheers. And uh, also if you put his box office together because of all the Pixar movies he's been in, I think he's like the highest grossing actor of all time, right? You know, so it's like <laughs> him and then like Tom Cruise or something like that. So um, I, I also, you know, of course, um, like it's always fun to hear Brad Garrett, uh, you know, um, and I think he does a great job with bloat and just that kind of deep booming voice played against the other voices of the tank gang is a lot of fun there. Um, so I like that. But, you know, obviously it's that main relationship between Dory and Marlin that carries this thing. And, you know, they really, really nailed that as far as them learning about each other, learning to like each other and, you know, relying on each other's strengths to accomplish their mission. Yeah. And that it's, it's impressive that there's, you think the central sort of emotional arc is going to be about Marlin learning to be a less overprotective dad and to trust Nemo and to be able to you know, have his own bravery so that he can go out and save his son. And there's all of that is there and is important. But that other arc with him and Dory about the friendship and about him opening up and allowing her to help him and things like yeah. that is also central. And in a way is more central, if only because 
they're a little more memorable as characters than Nemo is. And the way that it balances both of those things, I think, is impressive, you know, to the point where when they made a sequel, it wasn't really about the relationship between Marlin and Nemo. It was about Marlin and Dory. Right. And there's that moment where they're on the whale's tongue and, you know, uh, Dory, who, very funny scene that could have gone horribly wrong, right, where she's speaking whale and everything. And, you know, he says to just let go and, you know, slide back in his tongue and everything's going to be OK. And she and he goes, how do you know nothing bad's going to happen? And she goes, I don't. And like at that moment, he just, you know, kind of lets go and goes with her. And the whale, you know, shoots him out of the blowhole into the Sydney Harbor. I think that's like that's like a perfect movie moment right there. Yeah, it's a very nice moment. It uh, it's certainly. Thank you, Josh, for reaffirming. Right. I, I think maybe I, I'm not as. Uh, no, I like this movie a lot, but I maybe I wasn't quite as uh, emotionally invested. And, in and that's fine. I'm just saying, like, uh, objectively, that mo- yeah. like that moment is like technically uh, from a writing and performance and story standpoint as like it's it's a perfect movie moment. It builds to the perfect uh, conclusion of that moment. Yeah, it's, I mean, everything about this movie, you can really admire how it's constructed from all of those standpoints. Was there anything I, I do, you didn't like? Because, uh, you know, let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like just because, I mean, I don't necessarily think this is a perfect movie. That doesn't mean that I, I disliked it. I, I was feeling a little bit towards the end, like, okay, let's just get them reunited. Like, they've gone through so much. Yeah. And this isn't a long movie, but it felt a little long to me when it gets towards the final climax and it's like, oh, here's one more thing. Like they're so close and, but wait, you know, they, they, uh, when they end up in like Nemo's in like the sewage treatment area or something like that. And it's like, all right, just get to it already. So I got a little impatient there, but I mean, I feel like that's sort of nitpicky. Like this is a really good movie and um, I, I, I certainly wouldn't not recommend it. And I, I, I do also think it's one of Pixar's Probably one of Pixar's best. Um, I mean, I'd have to revisit a lot of these that I haven't seen in a while. But yeah, I don't want to be like down on any no, aspect of the no, movie, but that. No, but, but that's fair. That's literally the exact same thought I had is like, you know, how many obstacles can you throw at these guys before you get fatigue as an audience member of, um, you know, so when they're in, when they get caught in that giant net after we've had the reunion and it's, you know, now we have to work together and just keep swimming and swim down. You're like, it's just another obstacle and you're a little worn out by it but it but you're right it is just super nitpicky but i think it's a fair nitpick right and i think it also points to like if you look at at the sequel which we'll talk about which is also a good movie but that suffers even more from that where it seems like they're trying to like come up with more and bigger like challenges for them to overcome that that just get a little absurd after a while yeah um and this movie doesn't do that. I mean, obviously it's silly and it's over the top and they do all sorts of things that fish could not really do, but it it still felt like real within the world of the movie, which I feel like is something that the sequel, where by the end, I think the fish are like driving a car. Um, it does not (laughs) succeed at fully. Um, so I, I appreciated that as much as I was like, all right, let's, let's just do it. And you're, you know, you're invested in the emotions of it. You want to see Nemo and Marlin reunite and, and Marlin and Dory, like, you know, cement their friendship and all of that. And so it's like, all right, I don't really care about this net, like you were saying, or the 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 pipe in the sewage plant or whatever. Like we got the emotional arc. Let's just close it. Yeah. 
But on the flip side, one thing that I think maybe doesn't get enough credit is just how awesome they were to utilize so many different areas of the ocean. Like we say, oh, it's blue, it's pristine, but right. They go deep into the ocean. They go through a patch of jellyfish, you know, um, they go in the East Australian current and each one has like its own specific look within the overall look of the ocean. And I just think that's like just wonderful. Right. I mean, and I think that goes to what you were talking about with the research that they did, that they, uh, you know, they scuba dived and they consulted with people who know stuff about fish. Ichthyologists. Is that uh, the word? I'm glad you said it and not me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those those people. They consulted with those people. Um, And because there is so much variety, I mean, you know, you can watch an underwater documentary or something, including a Disney one. Maybe there are a few um, and learn. Uh, just about the the sheer range of uh, life and different environments that exist underwater, and they do take advantage of a lot of that. I mean, there's really beautiful that the, the 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 field of jellyfish is another really beautiful sort of animation moment. Um, yeah, that's also an emotional moment where you see how much Marlin cares about Dory because he realizes she got left behind and he swims back into this dangerous area to get her and bring her out. Yeah, everything has a purpose, so I really like that. I had read uh, William H. Macy was the original voice of Marlin, and that just didn't, you know, work for whatever reason. Megan Mullally uh, was fired for not being Karen-y enough, as, uh, you know, from Will and Grace. <laughs> but I don't know, Albert Brooks and Ellen DeGeneres, like, I don't think you could have done a better job of casting those leads for those parts. Yeah, they're both great. And I think they both play off of, I mean, obviously Albert Brooks, especially is plays on his established persona as this neurotic guy, but Ellen also who, you know, it's, uh, it's been a bit, uh, deflated recently, but is known as this super nice, super friendly person. And, uh, she can kind of play on that as Dory, who is super nice and super friendly despite her inability to remember things. So they do have great chemistry and you never know. I mean, in an animated movie, it's entirely possible that they like never met and never recorded together, but they still have that great interplay. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about Albert Brooks in future episodes because he is like, uh, he's in a way he's underrated as uh, all his influence and what he's brought to film over the, the decades. Right. And, and versatile, what he's brought to film as an actor. I mean, doing something like a voice in an animated movie, but acting in comedies as a writer, as a director. I mean, he's a multi-talented guy. Uh, I, you know, I would have been happy to see Albert Brooks uh, as a co-writer on a Pixar movie. I think that would be something uh, interesting. Yeah, he could do anything he wants. We love Albert Brooks and his brother. Rest in peace, Super Dave Osborne, Bob Einstein, a.k.a. Marty Funkhauser. Yeah, him mm-hmm. too. He's also great. <laughs> Why not get that in there as well? I think we might um, have uh, reached the end, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> when we when we bring up Super Dave, that uh, <laughs> that means it's time to close out our discussion of Finding Nemo. So I did want to mention real quick uh, one other thing. Actually, two other things that I, I had thought of. Um, there's three moments in this movie: the shark, the anglerfish, and then that net at the end with all the moonfish. Those are like some horrifying images, I thought. And this is such like a fun, silly movie. But I just think that the way that they captured that in a way that just makes it so scary is uh, pretty damn impressive. Yeah, the anglerfish especially, I think. 
Right. Yeah. That that to me is the only one of those that's really like scary because the sharks maybe look like scary sharks, but they're always nice and they have the friendly voices. Sure. Um, and that net thing, maybe it was just me, but as we're saying, by the time they got to that, I was like not. In you were I didn't. Out a I didn't feel any kind of danger. I felt more danger in that jellyfish sequence. Well, yeah, you could add that or the blue whale coming up from behind them. You know, I think mm. so. Yeah. Uh, right. But, but again, you know, kids. You could. I think Dave makes a. A point there where like if you were a kid that would that would feel dangerous right well and have you watched this with your daughter jason how did she yeah react? yeah we love finding nemo so, yeah was she scared at any of those moments um well we uh, we didn't get to watch it this time together but we watched it in the past so i think um her reactions were totally you know uh fitting of what you would expect a kid to be but now i wonder you know as she gets a little older if she just would enjoy it for you know, what, what we see it as. Right. She would definitely uh, be very interested in the animation process. I well, think. yeah, that and Albert Brooks comedic timing is a, it's a yeah. big deal for her. So. <laughs> right. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, what, what was the other thing you wanted to mention, Dave? Uh, just the entire sound uh, design that Thomas Newman scored, just all of it, just just incredible work here. And I mean, they're, you know, Pixar is always pretty great with that stuff, but uh, it just it just has such a feeling that under the sea feeling to it. Right. And that I'm sure I mean, the score, again, obviously was nominated for an Oscar and is great. But the sound design, I'm sure, also comes from that research that they did of uh, talking to experts and, and going underwater. And it it is part of creating that immersive world. It's not just yeah. the visuals. Um, so that's true. I mean, you you always feel like you're right in there with the characters. I mean, obviously. Uh, fish don't really talk, but other than what? that, I know, I know. Sorry to, <laughs> sorry to burst your bubble there, Jason. Um, but I mean, aside from that, it feels like this is really, you know, this is what it would be like to, to be under the ocean among these creatures. Yeah. I think in another year it would have won some of those Oscars, but it just ran into the buzzsaw of the uh, return of the King, you know? Right. That is true. If only, uh, Nemo had, uh, found the one ring and taken it to Mordor and uh, maybe. <laughs> I mean, if say it was up in the year of your favorite film, Crash, I think it could have beaten Crash. In some oh, categories. I hope so. Mm. I didn't take anything to beat Crash, but yeah. that's a, that's a whole. Let's rate this thing, Josh. Let's do that. Should we, what do you want to rate it out of Jason? Uh, five uh, snorkeling masks. Why not? That's, that's sure. innocuous for a kid's movie. How many snorkeling masks? I got it at four and a half, Josh. Four and a half wow. snorkeling masks. So. All right. I, I like it, but like I said, I think I gave it four when I reviewed it when it first came out, and I forgot that, and I, uh, I gave it three and a half this time, and I'm just going to stick with that. But I still, I like, I, it's a really good movie. I would recommend it to anyone if for some reason you haven't seen it. So uh, Dave, how do you want to rate this? I'm also going with three and a half, but great movie. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to give it four. Oh, okay. We're not, you can give it four no, and a you half. Guys, you not, guys peer pressured me down. We're, 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 we're totally not trying to do that. Please be enthusiastic. You just, know, we, we love that. Well, yeah. you know, I'll let the audience well, decide. What, I give what if I raise mine to four? Will you keep yours at four and a half? Yeah. Yeah, I will. This is, this is such a complicated process. It's really not necessary. Well, audience, tell me what you want me to rate it and send that uh, mail to 41 Wallaby Way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, make sure to put enough postage on it. Yeah. We'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of Finding Nemo.
Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this season premiere of our season on the films of 2003, we've been talking about box office almost champion Finding Nemo from Pixar. And in terms of the legacy, I mean, we, we, we mentioned or I mentioned a little the sequel, Finding Dory, which came out in 2016, which is it's a fun movie. It's um, I haven't seen it since it was released, but I remember enjoying it. Um, but it's it's no Finding Nemo. So do you like Finding Dory? Jake? I do like it. I don't think it's as good as Finding Nemo, but it's it's very good. It made over a billion dollars worldwide. So um, and I think, again, critical acclaim was, if not as big as Finding Nemo, uh, deemed a worthy sequel. Yeah, I think so. And that this is it was part of a wave of, of Pixar making all these sequels, which was something that they had mostly shied away from. And I think people, anytime that Pixar makes a sequel, people are wary of, can they recapture the magic of the previous one? Because so, so many of these Pixar movies are, are beloved in such a, a personal way by so many people. Um, but I think for the most part, they've met that skepticism that most of the sequels that they've made have been worthy of the previous movies. Yeah, um, I agree. I like the Toy Stories. I like the Monsters, Inc. I actually like the Monsters, Inc. sequel probably better than the first one. Um, and then this one's good. But also uh, one of the reasons they didn't make those sequels for a while is because they were, you know, in legal battles with uh, Disney, you know, because Michael Eisner, uh, you know, shockingly was being a dick. And uh, was trying to take over and, you know, do his own versions of these movies. Right. And of course, that problem was solved by Disney buying Pixar, yeah. which is how Disney solves all its problems. It was Just a good. It. It, it worked. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, Pixar has thrived since uh, since being purchased by Disney. And that purchase allowed a lot of the Pixar creative team to move over and have strong influence on Disney's main animated films and, and to the point where sometimes it's it's the distinctions are a bit blurred. But yeah, P Pixar continues making great movies uh, all the way through Soul, which came out uh, at the end of 2020. And uh, I, I enjoyed. Did you like Soul, Jason? Yeah, I liked it. And I know Dave liked it too. Um, Josh, that kind of like uh, synergy between the two. I remember when Pixar was brought into the fold at Disney like the parks weren't doing well. And then they were like, we're just going to make Pixar rides. And like, you know, there are finding Nemo attractions at these amusement parks now. So um, uh, don't go until you've been vaccinated. Good, good advice there. <laughs> um, there was also, there was a 3d re-release of this movie in 2012, which I, I didn't see. Uh, Dave, did you, I know you always go to the theater for things coming back. Did you see that? I completely forgot about that, but I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. Do you remember if the 3D uh, enhanced the experience at all? I doubt it enhanced it, just like it never really enhances anything, but I'm sure I enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not big on 3D either. So, uh, Jason, I, I didn't go to that. I assume you didn't either. No, I didn't, Josh. I had such a special time seeing it with you. <laughs> I just wanted to hold that moment for what Right, it was. well, that's <laughs> nice. I mean, the other possible answer was like, of course I went, and so did you, and we went together, and it was another <laughs> special time that you forgot about. Yeah, no, I, uh, I mean, I hadn't seen it in a while after I first saw it. But I definitely feel like um, from a structural standpoint, like even when I'm writing, uh, I've definitely, uh, uh, let's say, nicely been influenced by it on some things and uh, let's say more critically ripped it off. <laughs> well, if you're going to rip something off, you might as well go with something. I'm not going to I'm not going to say purposely ripped it off, but sometimes you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, that that's definitely a Finding Nemo thing. 
Yeah. So, but um, more negatively, let's talk about two of the negatives of this legacy, Josh. Uh, did you ever read Piero the Clownfish by Frank Le Calvez? I did not, but I know that was something where uh, he accused them of plagiarizing. But I feel like almost any movie that becomes a massive sensation ends up with one of those lawsuits that's dubious. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw a cover of the book and it looked pretty similar, but whatever. Um, And then uh, sadder was, uh, um, let me, I found this quote from National Geographic, Josh. Ironically, Finding Nemo, a movie about the anguish of a captured clownfish, caused home aquarium demand for them to triple. So more people got them and then some people released their fish and didn't know how to do it correctly and killed fish. And this is why robots will rule us all one day. I feel like I was was just going to say I'm one of those people. You got a you got a clownfish, Dave? I sure got a clownfish and my cat killed it. Oh, you're such a garbage person, Dave. (laughs) Wow. I feel like that's like a Disney movie plot where you'd have the evil cat that is like stalking the main fish character. And it has, to I was like... so mad. I was so mad about Dude, it. Dude. He looks like, like, uh, like he, like a child who knows he's done something wrong. He, viewers, you can't see this, but we're on, you know, a video program together. And he's like, Ooh, I was naughty. And it's like, yeah, Dave, enjoy your naughtiness with your stupid murder cat. I was so, I was so upset. I was sad. Is it the one yeah. you have still? No, it's the one that died a few years ago. Ha ha. Oh. <laughs> oh man, Dave, did you na- did you name the fish Nemo? Uh, no, I don't think I did that. I, I was like what twenty seven or something. <laughs> so, you were, so what you're saying is you had no excuse for this? Yeah, exactly. Andrew Andrew Stanton, the director of this film, has been a huge figure at Pixar for its entire existence. He went on to direct Wall-E which is another amazing, might, might even be my favorite Pixar movie. That's a good one. That is a good one. And mm-hmm. um, although he's continued to work with Pixar, um, as that's the only other one he directed, but um, he's also worked Oh, he did Dory. As, Didn't he direct Dory? Oh, and of course he directed yeah. Dory, yes. But that, that's the only other one outside of this sort of franchise. Um, but he's worked as a writer and a producer on most Pixar movies um, since Finding Nemo. But he also kind of made this ill-advised attempt to jump to live action with his version of John Carter starring Taylor Kitsch, which that I remember, Jason, we saw together. And I think you fell asleep. Is that correct? You do remember correct, Josh. And also that could have also been, uh, was it monsters versus cowboys? Was that another one? Cowboys versus aliens. Yeah. Yeah. I fell asleep in that one too. Um, Mm. I hated the John Carter movie. Did Andrew Stanton come in at like the end as like a replacement director or something? Or was this his baby from the beginning? No, I think it was like a passion project for him that he was always wanted to adapt this and finally got the chance to after his success at Pixar. Right. And there was going to be a series. Yeah, that movie is horrible. Yeah, it's what a miss. It is. It's one of those movies. I mean, it was a huge flop. Whatever year it came out, we could, uh, you know, cover that in our flop episode. But it, like most huge flops, it now has quite a cult following among people who think it's great. But I, I couldn't, I couldn't say. I haven't seen it since yeah. you and I saw the, it together. Those are probably the same it. people who bought Clownfish <laughs> when they saw this. Go on, Dave. Did you? You're you right. liked, You liked John I, Carter, Dave. I did. I, I I thought it was one of those just ridiculous, over the top, fun movies. But uh, I I know that it is like it, it's kind of interesting that it's developed this weird cult following now. I haven't watched it since the theater. It might be terrible. I don't know. It is terrible, Dave. 
like your <laughs> murder cat. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, although that obviously didn't launch the franchise, uh, Andrew Stanton has continued to try to, to sort of move into the live action realm. He's done some TV directing uh, with episodes of Stranger Things and Better Call Saul. And he has two live action movies kind of in development right now. One called Revolver with Ethan Hawke. That's like a period piece related to the Beatles and a science fiction movie called Chairman Spaceman. <laughs> well, thank goodness wow. there's a movie uh, related to the Beatles because we haven't seen those every year of our lives since we were born. Um, yeah. And then they're all so good. They're all just as good as the Beatles were, aren't they? So, uh, Josh, the creative team, Stanton, you know, like you had mentioned, they all kind of work in this group in Pixar. And it's like Lee Unkirk, uh, Unkrich did Coco and Bob Peterson did Up. Like they've all hit just home runs here. So. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of talent involved in this this movie that, you know, th that Pixar has held on to. Lee Unkrich actually just left Pixar, I think, in 2019 after being there for like 25 years, but directed Coco, as you said, and uh, I think it's Toy Story 3 that he directed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, right. The, uh, so much talent at Pixar. Right. The other thing legacy wise that I found interesting is that, you know, Ellen DeGeneres got such a claim for this, but she basically never acts. And this is playing Dory is the only acting role that doesn't involve a, like a cameo as herself that she's made since Finding Nemo came out. So she really, mm -hmm. I mean, obviously she's hugely successful as a talk show host, but Dory is like the only part that she ever plays. Hmm. Uh, am I incorrect in remembering her as the producer in Ed TV with Matthew McConaughey? Is that, isn't she play that character? Uh, maybe, I don't know. What year did Ed TV come out? I feel like that, came out around the time of the Truman show and this, there were like two movies about like life as uh, a reality show. And I'm pretty sure she was the producer slash love interest for Matthew McConaughey in that one. Yeah. That came out in 1999. So that was four years earlier. So again, this was like the end of her acting career here. Yeah. Finding I, I, and I don't think she like, she's good. Like we know that. So she could still be acting. I think she, chose to, you know, just go into uh, hosting and sometimes game show hosting or award show hosting along with her very successful TV show, which, as you mentioned, has found controversy during the pandemic for her being a meanie. Would, would we yes. say that? So, yes, I think that's a, a one way to put it. And um, uh, she's got some good stand up specials, too. Right. Well, I mean, and I'm not trying to imply that she like failed as an actor or something. She obviously chose to take her career in this other direction. But I just thought it was interesting that she got this acclaim and, um, you know, that was kind of her swan song as a, as an actor, as playing a character, uh, was this here. And I mean, in a way, because, uh, you know, of her reputation as a meanie, uh, maybe playing characters would be better for her because the reason that people care about that is because she sells her persona as herself right. on that show as being this, this super nice person, which is more important when you are trying to say that is your genuine personality. Yeah, and that was one of those where like Twitter took over and like hashtagged her and like and there were all these stories of what a meanie she was. And I'm sure she is, but Dory is lovely. Do you want to talk more about how much you love Albert Brooks? I mean, I do love Albert Brooks as a comedian. I think he's like as good and as smart as there is. And he had uh, one of my one of my favorite bits of all time that he used to do on uh like the variety shows of like the 60s and 70s he would do a ventriloquist act but um he would pour the glass of water down the dummy's throat <laughs> 
So the act was he would talk and the, the dummy would drink the water. That that was pretty funny, I thought. So maybe yeah. I didn't sell it as good as it should have been. Do you have a favorite Albert Brooks mo- movie or performance, Josh? Uh, I don't know. You know, I think a lot of his early like uh, comedic movies I actually haven't seen or some I haven't seen in a long time. But um, I always like, you know, we talked about how versatile he is. I mean, he was nominated for an Oscar for his dramatic role in Drive. And I think that was a great, even though I don't really that like that That was movie, awesome, yeah. But, you know, him him using that personality of his and the the sort of uh, perception of him to flip it on its head and be, play, play this really, like, dangerous, menacing gangster. Yeah, so. well, no, I mean, he was, I mean, he's a good dramatic actor. We saw, you know, going back to, like, Taxi Driver and stuff. So, you know, I mean, and he's done some big ones. Obviously, broadcast news and defending your life, I think, are probably the the height of that. Right, right. Anything else you want to mention on the legacy here, Jason? Uh, Hank Scorpio, Josh. Who is Hank Scorpio? The great, great villain that Albert Brooks played in The Simpsons. Oh, we're still on Albert Brooks. Okay. <laughs> I mean, dude, he, you know, Hank Scorpio, who's like, a, you know, the nice guy turns James Bond supervillain. Hank Scorpio's rad. Yeah, I, I do actually, I, I do remember that now. But um, anything else about Finding Nemo's legacy that is not about Albert Brooks? Uh, Dave murders fish. There you go. <laughs> there Dave you murders go. fish. <laughs> Let's leave that there. That is Finding Nemo. And that is this season premiere episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can follow us on social media. You can. I'm uh, on Facebook and Instagram as J, uh, Jason Harris Comedy, on Twitter as J Harris Comedy, and my website, goforjason.com, somewhere deep, dark in the ocean of the internet. Where at awesomemovieyear.com, check out the about section. Awesome Movie Year on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, spacejam.com. Oh, we're back to mentioning spacejam.com. Thank you, Jason, for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm at joshbellhateseverything.com, which I think I can no longer say has new content because I've been saying that for many episodes now, and it's not really that new anymore. But maybe there'll be more stuff there eventually. Josh Bell Hates Everything on Facebook and at Signal Bleed on Twitter. And check out our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. You can find Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on social media at PiecingPod. We also, on uh, the Patreon, the By David Rosen Patreon, have a bonus episode from our recently concluded 1984 season on Purple Rain. And uh, what else is on the Patreon, Dave? Well, we have advanced episodes of Piecing It Together. Got a bunch of stuff from my music career going up on there very soon and stuff that's already been up there for a while that you can check out if you haven't seen it yet. And uh, I look forward to seeing what the bonus episode of season seven will end up being of Awesome Movie Year. Yeah, maybe if we get to double digit patrons, we can uh, do some extra bonuses. <laughs> so I would love to see that happen. We can hope. But in the meantime, what is in our next episode? Josh, Jason? it's the first feature 2003. It's a lovely film. I don't know if uh, I hope that we're going to introduce it to some people who don't know it. Tom McCarthy's The Station Agent. So tune in next time for The Station Agent, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.